Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. And I just want to share with you, as this um, pandemic unfolded, uh, Pastor Roger and I, we began to pray and we began to talk about uh, the direction that we wanted to go beyond the Easter sermon series. And we, we were tempted and we discussed the idea of maybe um, going off uh, kind of schedule, shifting gears a little bit, and maybe crafting a sermon series that was relevant to the current situation. Um, but you know what? We actually decided to stay the course. And so back by popular demand, we are going to jump right back in to the book of Romans. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this. We actually started the book of Romans. We started this sermon series back in September. And here we are now in April, and we are committed to finishing the book of Romans as a church. And we should be finishing that together by Sunday, June 16th. Now, if you're just joining us or you're new to the Inspire family, you can take a look at our podcast on our website at inspirechurches.com, or you can go online, wherever uh, podcasts are found, and you can find the rest of our By Faith Alone Romans sermon series. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, season three, episode 22 um, of our Inspire Original By Faith Alone sermon series. And again, I am just so excited to jump back into Romans because I believe that the book, God's word is relevant in any time and in any season. And so with that being said, like any good season premiere, what I want to do is I want to give you a brief recap so that you can understand where we've been so you can get a feel for where we are about to go. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter of the book of Romans. He wrote it as a letter to a church in Rome. And in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul takes his time uh, breaking down the intricacies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul explains how the cross of Christ is mankind's only refuge, mankind's only hope and shelter from the wrath of God. In fact, it's the blood of Jesus that is mankind's only vaccine that is powerful enough and capable enough of deterring the virus of sin and death. And so the Apostle Paul pens down the intricacies of how the gospel works and what this good news means to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And although he rejoices over this glorious gospel in chapter 8 of Romans, he also experiences sorrow over it here in chapter 9. Now, why would anybody experience sorrow over the greatest news in the history of mankind? I'm going to tell you why. Because the redemption of all mankind was accomplished. Listen, when the Jews crucified Jesus. So now the blessings they rejected in Christ have been taken away from them and given to the Gentiles. Now in this 
next, in these next couple of chapters, there's a tension that I really want to tap into. And this is the tension. Does this reality make God unfaithful? Has God gone back on his word? Has God abandoned his people? And, and if he has, then God is not a God who can be trusted because if he could reject the Jews, if he could abandon the people of the old covenant, then he could abandon the people of the new covenant. But the resolution is this. Paul will take his time in the next three chapters, chapter nine through 11, to prove that God can be trusted and that the Jews are in fact still a part of God's redemptive plan. Now this is really key. So I I really want you to lean into this. In God's divine providence, he will use the rejection of the Jews to reach the Gentiles. Then he'll use the conversion of the Gentiles to ultimately bring the Jews back to him so that at the end of time, both Jew and Gentile will both be saved, fulfilling God's original promise to Abraham. Now, before we pray and get into chapter nine this morning, I want to let you know that the next couple of chapters of the next couple of weeks are going to be difficult chapters. Um, They're going to be very controversial. You might hear some things that might upset you. Uh, In fact, any time a pastor or a preacher goes through the book of Romans, we are always tempted just to skip over chapters 9 through 11. So we we love chapters 1 through 8, and we want to skip over chapters 9 through 11, and we want to finish Romans off. But Pastor Roger and I are going to tackle these chapters head on. And so if you're a seasoned vet, maybe you're a theologian sitting at home, I invite you to join us. Uh, but also, if you're new to this, if, if church culture is new to you, then I also want to invite you to lean in, and I want to do my best to engage you so that you can understand these difficult passages as well. So do me a favor, while you're right there at home, will you pray for me as I pray for you? Uh, Heavenly Father, we need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you to help me to articulate difficult passages. I need you to humble all of the ears that are listening and the eyes that are watching today. I need you to humble us so that we would not be discouraged when your word contradicts how we think you should work, how we think you should act. And ultimately, I pray that your gospel is made known, that Christ is glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna take a long passage, Romans chapter nine, and we're gonna read verses one through 29. Um, And I know it's a long text, but in that long text, I actually wanna key in, zero in on two themes. The first theme is found in chapters, or verses one through five. Paul will express his pain over the rejection of Israel. Then in chapters 6 through 29, Paul will explain God's faithfulness despite Israel's rejection. And so with that being said, let's begin by looking at Paul's pain in in chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 together. Let's read that now. The Apostle Paul writes, 
I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And here it is. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I want to pause there momentarily and I want to tap into Paul's pain because I think that his pain can teach us something this morning. You see, on one hand, in chapter 8, we see Paul rejoicing over the effectiveness of the gospel. We see Paul rejoicing over the blood of Jesus that has been spilt for the nations. We see God, we see the apostle Paul rejoicing because Jesus has died. We are shielded from the wrath of God. But on the other hand, here in chapter 9, Paul is grieving because of what that means for the Jews. You see, by crucifying Christ, the Jews have been rejected while the world, the nations, the Gentiles are being called in to be redeemed. And we can tell that this reality has Paul all twisted up inside because at the end of chapter eight, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But then in chapter nine, he begins by saying, I wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And so in one reality, he says, nothing can separate us. And he is celebrating that truth. And then in another reality, he says, I wish I could be separated. And I have to say that I'm challenged personally by Paul's passion and his pain. Listen to what the heart of the Apostle Paul is really saying. He says this, I am willing to go to hell so that my people, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, my father, my family members, my countrymen. He says, I am willing to go to hell so that they can see heaven. And what's so crazy to me is that his anguish and his pain for the lostness of his brothers and sisters has caused him to want to be cut off from Christ for their sake. Now, I just want to kind of venture off into a quick side note. If you really think about it, what Paul is asking to do for the Jews is what Christ has already done. You see, Christ was cut off from God so that you and I can be brought near to God. Christ was accursed by God so that you and I could be blessed and in favored by God. Christ descended into hell so that you and I could one day ascend into heaven. Still, I wonder what the church would look like if it was filled with people who felt like Paul. I want you to think about that. What would the church look like 
if it was filled with people who had an evangelistic anguish like the Apostle Paul. I wonder if we would need to beg or cheerlead people to evangelize if they were disturbed in this way. I remember before I planted Inspired Church, I was actually a youth pastor for 10 years of my life. In fact, I was a youth pastor for longer than 10 years of my life. In fact, if you're watching out there, Master's Commission, Roots Deep, all my youth and young adult family that's out there, I love y'all so much. I think about you often. And, you know, anybody who knew the ministry, the youth ministry that we were involved in, anyone who knew the team, anybody who knew me knew that I loved my young people. I loved my leadership team. I loved them dearly. In fact, I treated them like they were my own kids. I remember we used to do everything together. I would drive them everywhere. I would pay for them. We would have pizza all the time because that was the cheapest meal. I'd feed them. Uh, I would do homework with them. I would go to teacher parent conferences with them. I loved my kids so much. They were not just young people to me, but they were children to me. And so you can imagine as I have planted this church and I've been out of youth ministry for some time, whenever I see some of my kids now, like specifically those who are far from Christ. Whenever I see those kids that I remember at one time were giving their all, were sacrificing it all for the sake of Jesus. Whenever I see them now far from God, I can't help but begin to tap in just a little bit to what the Apostle Paul must have been feeling You know, if you've been in ministry long enough, if you've been in the church long enough, you know the pain and the anguish that you feel when a brother and sister in Christ who once was giving it their all walked away from Jesus. It's almost like you're mourning a death inside of you. It is so deep. And here's the tragic irony of it all. Those who were once so close are now so far. And so we see the Apostle Paul lamenting. He he's laments. He's saying, for thousands of years, the Israelites were at the center of God's redemptive plan. For thousands of years, the Israelites, they were given the promises. They were the ones prophesying. They were adopted by God. In fact, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was one of them. He was a Jew. Now it feels like, it seems like they're so far. Now it feels like it has all been for nothing. And the question remains, God, are you done with them? God, have you abandoned your people? God, did you break your promise? Did you mean what you say? Can you be trusted? And so Paul moves from expressing his sorrow over Israel's rejection to explaining God's faithfulness in Israel's rejection. Paul will explain how God, listen, never promised everybody, but only promised a selected few. Let's continue in chapter nine. If you have your Bibles, we're gonna jump right back into it. Chapter nine, verse six. And it reads like this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the answer. It is not as though 
the word of God has failed. Now here's the explanation. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not, and there it is again, all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good and bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And again, I want to pause there and get into this explanation of God's faithfulness. You see, yes, God can be trusted. No, God did not abandon his people. God's promise was not for all of Israel but only for those who believed. God's election, and election just simply means God's choice. God's election for salvation and God's election for service has always been and will always be by faith alone. This is why it was possible for God to accept one and reject the other in the same family. Remember, the example that Paul's using is that there are two brothers in the same family with the same father, with the same parents, and, and, and God has accepted one and has chosen one while has rejected the other. And this is so key. Faith was the difference between a child of promise and a child of the flesh. Did you catch that? There are children of promise and there are children of the flesh, both in the same family. God gave a specific promise to Abraham and Sarah regarding a son. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament? The barren Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, they were both too old. They were beyond childbearing years. But yet God said, you will have a son at this time. You remember Sarah laughs because they're so old and she's been barren. God gave a promise to this couple that they would have a son. But listen, because Abraham at some point began to waver in his trust, right? He began to waver in his belief, right? He began to think, no way God's going to do this. His time went by. So, well, God gave you this promise, but he began to think about the circumstances, right? All of the odds were against him. We're too old. Uh, we're beyond our childbearing years. Uh, Sarah has been barren. And as a result, he began to allow that to erode his trust in God. So what began to happen? He took matters into his own hands. So the son, Jacob, that was the result of God's word, was accepted. But the son, Ishmael, who was the result of Abraham's works, was rejected. You see, what I failed to mention is while Abraham was beginning to have unbelief in God, he decided to take matters into his own hands. And so he went and slept with his wife's maidservant. And from that, 
from that encounter, Ishmael was born. Yet Ishmael was not of the promise. Ishmael was of the flesh. We can still see this tension even now, right now, this flesh and promise tension. You and I, we can still see it today in salvation and we can still see it today in our own walk with God. What do I mean by that? Well, in our salvation, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by our works. God, at the end of time, will not weigh your good works and your bad works and say to you, well, if your good works are, are, are weightier than your bad works, then you can come into heaven. You want to know why? Because your sin, your bad works will always outweigh your good. You cannot save yourself. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith, trust, grace alone. And I want you to see this. Paul says, just because you're from Israel does not mean that you are Israel, right? There is, there is no salvation through nationalism. In fact, I think uh, somebody at this point, maybe I'll do it, uh, needs to remind some of you Facebook Christians that are out there, y'all know who you are. Uh, your nationalism doesn't save you. Like we tie and connect our Christianity to being an American so much. And almost as even your political vote, whether you're Democrat or Republican, actually identifies whether you're a Christian or not. But I want you to know the Apostle Paul says we, the Jews are not saved just because they're from Israel. And I want you to know just because you're an American, just because you voted Democrat, just because you voted Republican does not mean that you are saved. Nationalism doesn't save. How about this? The fact that you were born and raised in church. That's me. Anybody out there born and raised in church? Your parents made you go to the church. I always say 25 hours a day, eight days a week. You were there nonstop and you felt like because you were born in church, you heard it all. You said it all. You've seen it all that somehow you are saved. Look, just because you were born and raised in church does not mean that your salvation is secure. Paul goes on to say, just because you're related to Abraham doesn't make you Abraham's son. In fact, Jesus rebuking the Pharisees in the gospels tells them, yeah, you, are, you come from Abraham, but you are not of Abraham. In fact, your father is the devil. I want you to know salvation is not through nationalism. Salvation is not hereditary. Just because you have a grandpa or a grandma that pastored a church doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you have a mama that prays for you. And I know a lot of us say, well, I thank God for a praying mama. But just because she's praying for you doesn't mean that your life is secure. And so we are not saved by our works. But also there's another way that this tension plays out of the flesh and the promise. And that's in our daily walk. I'm going to speak to you for a second. For those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to be aware of those areas in your life that you're still operating in the flesh. Where do you see yourself still operating in doubt and unbelief? You remember Abraham, he was called by God. He was given a promise of a son by God, but at some point he, he began to lose a, a, a belief. He began to, he began to worry and he began to doubt the promise. And so what did he do? He began to operate in his own flesh. Listen, because you're in a rush, because you're in a hurry, because this is how you think your life should be going. Here's my question, my challenge for you. What areas in your life are you willing to distrust God and begin to move in compromise? 
trying to live for Christ while walking it out in the flesh never ends well. So from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to the nation of Israel, God has always elected, chosen a remnant, a faithful few within the nation to carry out his word. Listen, that remnant has always been identified by faith. Those who trust God, those who believe God and not by the flesh, those who trust in their own works, those who put things in their own hands, those who get impatient with God's plan and decide to work a plan out for themselves. God always works through a faithful remnant willing to wait and trust on him. Paul then doubles down on this point by making some very controversial statements. We're going to jump back into chapter nine and continue to read verses 11 through 29. And it reads like this. Though they were not yet born is referring to, um, this is referring to Isaac and Jacob, Jacob and Ishmael. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, Jacob and Esau finally got it in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written. Here it is. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not by my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Wow. Mind-blowing, controversial, some of the most difficult things that I will ever have to preach. But here's what I want to do. I want to take those verses that we just read, and I want to do my best to quickly break them down into three big questions. Question number one is asked, is God's election unfair? Is it unfair of God to choose? And Paul answers, absolutely not. How could God be unfair? God is just. And in proving this point, Paul quotes the Old Testament when God held back his judgment from Israel when they were worshiping idols, when they had created a calf. God could have destroyed them, but he held it back. And God told Moses this, and this is important. God says this, I reserve the right to save whomever, however I please. You see, God has the freedom to show mercy to people who do not deserve his mercy. So check this out. This is not a matter of man's free will to earn salvation, but a matter of God's free will to save by faith. Question number two. What about the times in scripture where we see God hardening the heart of men? Here's a big question. And I definitely know that we're not going to settle it right here. But does God predetermine our fate? Have you ever thought about that? Does he predetermine our fate? Does he pre-plan our life so that some are destined to go to one place while others are destined to go to another. Now, I know some of you are leaning in because this is where you like to debate, but I'm going to let you know that no matter how long and uh, that we're in this flesh and on this earth, we'll probably never really know the answer to this until we are on the other side of heaven for sure with our Father. And I also want you to know, no matter where you line up on this spectrum, uh, doesn't uh, ruin the outcome. You can still be a believer and a lover, a follower of Christ, saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, if you stand on either side of the aisle. But what about the times that God has hardened the hearts of men? Does God predetermine people's fate? You see, we're told in Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you remember that? Moses comes in and Moses says, God has called me to uh, declare to you that you are to let my people go. Remember, Egypt has all of the Hebrew people enslaved. And, and, and what does Pharaoh say? Each time Pharaoh says no, and Pharaoh becomes stubborn. And every time uh, Moses declares a judgment of God against Israel, and 10 times, 10 plagues. We, we actually preached about this a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday. And every time we see that the Lord begins to harden the heart of Pharaoh, and here's what's happening. And this is what God is saying. In the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God demonstrates his judgment. God demonstrates his power. And God brings himself glory so that Pharaoh becomes an instrument by which God displays his might. 
Now, in the same way, we're talking about the children of Israel who had crucified Jesus. They rejected their Messiah. He had come to them and they had condemned him to die. In fact, not only were the Jewish authorities condemning him to die, but also the Jewish crowds were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Yet, through that crucifixion, God used it to redeem the world. And so in a way, you can see how God not only hardens the heart of Pharaoh so that his will could be done, but he also hardens the heart of his people so that Christ could be crucified. And in that crucifixion, the world would be saved. Now, here's the big picture. Sometimes God will fulfill his promises by showing mercy. And then sometimes God will fulfill his promises by showing wrath. Either way, God's promises are kept and his word is fulfilled. Finally, question number three, big question number three. Does God's election absolve mankind of any responsibility and accountability. Think about that. Does God's election, does God's choice absolve mankind of any responsibility and accountability? If the hardening of Israel helped God accomplish his plan, then why should Israel be blamed? If the hardening of Pharaoh's heart uh, uh, helped God accomplish his plan, then why should Pharaoh be blamed? Are you following me? Let me just say this. There are some mysteries regarding God, like I said before, that will be forever debated. There are some things that as we read scripture, even though scripture may reveal it because of mankind's sinfulness, we'll just never fully be able to grasp or understand. Specifically, when it comes to God's divine election and man's predestination, there are actually some different ways that you can view it. God's divine election and man's predestination. There are actually two different ways. There are several different ways. It's uh, within these two, but there are two main ways in which you can view this overall. Number one, you can take the view that it's God's prerogative. In fact, anytime I say that, I immediately want to sing um, Bobby Brown's song. It's my prerogative, but I'm not going to do that here. But the first view is it's God's prerogative. In other words, since he is God, right? Since he is creator of all things as creator, ready? He is justifiably right to create vessels for wrath and create vessels for mercy without any question. It's almost like a, a storyteller. If you've ever watched a good movie, maybe you've watched Lord of the Rings, right? Nobody looks at the author, uh, uh, the writer of Lord of the Rings and says, well, why did you make some bad? And why did you make some good? Everyone just is enthralled with the story. And so you can take this view that it's God's prerogative, that he is God, that he is creator, and that those that are created have no justifiable right to question him on how he should determine creation should go. The thing that is created has no right to tell the one who is creating what to do. Secondly, another view you can respect the view of God's prerogative or you could take the view of what is called judicial hardening of hearts. 
What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that there are some out there that would believe that God only hardens the hearts of those who's had hard hearts already. (laughs) That's hard to say. God only hardens the heart of those who have already been moving in hardness of heart. In other words, he allows the natural progression of the heart to take shape. And those judicially hardened or those that have been cut off are not born in this condition. In other words, they are not predetermined to go to heaven or to go to hell. They're not born in that condition, but they have grown over the years in their hardness. But yet that hardness has brought glory to God. And so that God in his hardening of their hearts is already accomplishing in them what has already began. So God's divine election, his divine choice, it's his choice to save those who responded to him by faith alone and not by works. Finally, grace and mercy. Can I just say this right now? Wherever you land, wherever you stand right now, whatever position you take in the scriptures, because this can be debated. uh, This can get really intense, can get really fierce. Some of us can get offended by it. Some of us can be disturbed by it. Some of us actually enjoy this. But wherever you stand, or maybe you just don't stand at all. Maybe I don't have a dog on this fight. I don't even know enough about scriptures. This is blowing my mind right now. Here's something that we can all universally agree on. Are you ready? Because of sin, nobody deserves heaven. Nobody. We can all universally agree that because of sin, nobody deserves heaven. You see, the truth is nobody deserves the mercy of God. In fact, all have earned God's wrath. And if we want God to be just about it, like if we want him to be fair, like, come on, God, be just. Like, right? We want him to be, come on, God, I need you to be a little bit more fair. You got to be careful what you're saying because justice and treating you fair means you get what you have earned and you have earned nothing short but the wrath of God. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We all fall short of his glory. If you want him to be just and you want him to be fair, then he is going to rain down his wrath on us see the moment we sinned the moment we sinned listen the moment we all sinned we forfeited our right to tell God what to do and why he should do it see the moment you sinned you forfeit the right to tell God what he should do with your life, how he's not moving fast enough, how you've been waiting very long and maybe he doesn't think about you, maybe he's left you behind. Like the moment you sinned is the moment you forfeited that right. Now here's the real logic. Here's the real logic. If you just want to think logically with me, here it is. God is justifiably in the right to send us all to hell. The fact that he would even choose one, the fact that he would even bring one of us, the fact that he would even send one to heaven, the fact that he would even declare not guilty over just one of us is a sign of his immense, great, enormous mercy. 
So the task for us today as followers of Christ is not to question God as to whether he's being fair or not, but to worship our King Jesus because he is full of mercy and grace. We are not deserving. We all deserve to be in hell. Yet because of the sacrificial crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have been brought in. And so today, as we worship, I want us to worship a God who is just, a God who moves in judgment and who moves in wrath. But what compels us to worship is that we serve a God in spite of those things, who is a God of grace, who is a God of mercy, who is a God that sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. Come on, right there in your living room, will you just get up right in front of your children and will you just worship and magnify this glorious and beautiful Savior together? We trip up over things that our rebellious hearts want to trip up over, but now it's time to worship the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful one, Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, maybe you tuned in today and you just kind of stumbled on us or maybe you've just never been to a church or I don't know, you, you just feel far from God. Maybe you felt like I was talking about you as one of those who have fallen away. Maybe you used to be on fire for the Lord. Maybe you used to give him your all, but you feel so far from him. I want you to know that there's nothing you can do on your own. You can't work your way back, but here's what the beautiful thing is right there where you're at in your room right now, you can give your life to Christ. And you might be saying, I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. He'll never take me back. I want you to know you don't have to work it. You don't have to spend this, these many days in prayer. Read your Bible again. Right now, in this moment, the favor of God is ready to smile and shine down on your life. Let me tell you how. If you would just stop working, stop trying to make it happen with your own hands, and put your faith, your trust, your hope, your belief on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you would just repent, and all that is is admitting that you are a sinner, admitting that you can't save yourself, turning from your sin and looking at Christ, looking at him on the cross, looking at his death and his blood and thanking him because in his resurrection, he's given us new life. If you would just put your hope in that story, in that man, Jesus Christ, right now in the room, you don't even have to be at a church. Right in your room now, how beautiful. What if you were to say, during this pandemic was when the Lord got my attention and I gave it all to him. So I pray right now in the name of Jesus for anybody out there who doesn't know you, who feels far from you. And right now I come against the enemy, the lies, the insecurities, the doubts. It says, I'm not good enough. I want, to, I want you to know no one's good enough, but Christ is put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done and you will be saved. You'll be a friend of God. Thank you, Jesus. This week, I want to invite you, if you're not connected during the week, to join one of our Zoom Connects. We meet on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays at 7.30, online, on Zoom. You can follow us at Inspire Churches, any one of our social media accounts, and we would love to send you the link to join us. And what do we do in these Zooms? We talk about the sermon. We, we break down the message on Sundays. We have a beautiful time together. 
So what I want to do right now is I'm going to take a moment just to read to you the discussion questions that are actually in your service guide um, that we'll be discussing this week at our Zoom Connects. Number one, how has Paul's heart for the lostness of his people challenged your heart for the lostness of the people around you? What keeps you from sharing the gospel more often with your family and your friends and those that are around you? Number two, like Abraham, we have a tendency to mistrust God and to take matters into our own hands. In what areas in your life do you see this regularly taking place? Where are you most tempted to compromise while waiting on God? Finally, question number three, how often do you find yourself demanding fairness from God in your life? And how has this sermon challenged your view of your sinfulness and his holiness? And how has it challenged you to change up your question from questioning his fairness to, question, to, to looking at worshiping his holiness? So we thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you would come back next week. We love you. From our hearts to yours, God bless you. From our room to your family room, have a beautiful Sunday. Amen. Hey guys, I'm back. What a powerful message and our prayer is that it brought you closer to Jesus Christ. If this is your first time checking out Inspire or if you committed your life to Jesus Christ, please text the word welcome to the number on the screen. If you would like our staff and our team to pray with you, please get a hold of us at inspirechurches at gmail.com. You can also keep up to date with all of the things that we are doing, or you can find out how to get involved by going to our website, inspirechurches.com. We're so excited that you have been a part of this. We're praying for you. We miss you. And we cannot wait to see you next time. Bye, guys.